We are in a new series that we started last week called Lost. Jesus said, uh, when he was asked what the most important thing was, he gave a very clear command. He said, oh, here it is. It's, it's, It's quite simple. You just need to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Simply put, really hard to do. Like, really, really, profoundly hard to live out. Now, I think it would be easier if there were no other competition for my heart and my soul or my mind and my strength, if, if there weren't other things vying for them in my life. I also think it might be easier um, if there weren't an enemy, a foe, also trying to take away my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. Because the truth is, when we find them again, that's where real life is. That's where heart-reviving, soul-stirring, mind-blowing, strength-invigorating, the life that you were created to have and live in as as creatures of glory, as the scripture says, that's where it's found. Now, my premise in the series is the truth is that for so many of us, the Bible indicates this too, we have lost somewhere along the way. Our heart and our soul and our mind, and we even joked about it last week, some of us would even admit we've lost our minds along the path of this thing we call life. Because things happen. I mean, you live long enough. Somebody said to me last week, you know, when you live in this world, eventually the hammer falls. I mean, life's hard. It doesn't go the way that you thought it was going to go. It can be disappointing. It can throw curveballs. And our hearts and our souls and our mind and our strength wind up being weakened or, or the truth is maybe just lost along the way. And how can you love God with your heart, your soul, your mind and the strength? How can you love others? How can you love yourself? How can you love yourself if you've lost those things? Now, what we looked at last week, you can check it out online. What we looked at last week is there are fundamental, foundational truths to this battle for your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And they play, they play out all around us. If you were here, hopefully, maybe on Christmas Eve too, you will remember one of the primary teaching things that I have for you is this. All that you see is not all that there is. All that you see is not all that there is. For people who are interested in finding God, experiencing God, this is absolutely bedrock to your walk. Now, last week I gave you a lot of biblical support for the idea. I even told you about a moment in my own life when I lost the person that was closest to me, my grandmother, uh, in my early 20s. I told you exactly where I was when I remember like an event in my soul where the shade just seemed to go up and suddenly I saw things... uh, not with my eyes, but kind of in my spirit, where all of a sudden I understood the world differently. It didn't make sense anymore. And and as a result of that revelation, I was going to live differently. I was going to be different. I had understood something in a new spiritual realm. But then I told you that over a period of somewhere between 48 and 72 hours, I felt the shade coming down and down, and it was gone. Because I had to go to work on Monday. I had a a, a career path to, to set out on, and you know, kids to raise, and and suddenly it just, it was gone. And we looked, 
we looked at how this eternal truth, some of you have experienced that, we, we looked at this eternal truth because we all know this at some level. Everybody that's ever existed, the scripture actually talks about this, right? God has a set eternity in the hearts of man. You think different than your dog. You understand at some level there's more going on than what you, know, what you can perceive. Every great story talks of this truth. We looked at them last week, right? The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy winds up. She walks out of a black and white world and into a color world. Everything's different. She sees things differently for a moment. And she looks and she goes, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. And it was that brilliant clip from The Matrix that I showed you last week where, where Nemo is just sitting there and he's given a choice between taking two different kinds of pills, right? He can either take the one pill and that's just going to allow him to, to continue to live his life out in the fog, just to continue to live the way, the way everybody else is living in this matrix, unknowing what's going on around him, or he could take the red pill and his eyes would be open. And, and if you remember, the question at the, at the end of the clip is, which one do you choose? That's an eternal question. Do you want to see how things really are? Do you want to be stirred a little bit from your sleep? Do you want to awake and see what's really going on around you? Or do you just want to stay dead? Hoping that nobody wakes you because you got a retirement to save for. This is why the Bible says, wake up. Wake up, you sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. And the scripture keeps going, though, that same verse. Be very careful, though, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Because somebody is working on stealing from you your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Last week I said, if you've experienced, if you've had that moment of the shade going up, I would love for you to tell me about it. Where you all of a sudden, it just like, for a moment, you were like, holy smokes, I see the way things are for a moment. And a few of you emailed me your stories. I loved reading them. One of you wrote to me and said that I've had a couple of these moments in my life where I was awakened to the reality of my situation and what was going on. And I have to tell you that each of them arose out of pain. I thought that was pretty good. I mean, thinking back to my one time where I had this very clear revelation of what was going on and and how everything that, I, you know, this whole thing was kind of silliness and folly, and I had been raised above it for a moment. That came out of the pain of, of the loss of my grandmother. Now, if you remember from last week, the first eternal truth was that all that you see is not all that there is. There is an entire spiritual thing going on, an entire spiritual realm that you are surrounded by. You might not be aware of it, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Now, the second eternal truth was this. That there is a war going on, and you were born into it. I know you didn't ask for it. I know you didn't start it. But the Bible teaches over and over. We even looked at the great C.S. Lewis said, the more I study the scriptures, the more I realize that this is a story about war. And the prize is you. Your heart. The deepest part of you. Your heart is at stake, and so many of us have just been rendered, in a sense, to the sidelines of life, known in our culture, or at least in my house, as the couch, because that's what we wanted. See, none of you grew up. I didn't go, man, I can't wait till I get old enough to sit on the couch every night. I dream of it. That was never the goal. But the truth is, we get taken out. We were created as objects of glory. 
Somewhere along the way, something happened, and I lost heart. I gave up. I no longer started to dream big dreams. I just settled for lesser things. I lost heart. Maybe you have too, and suddenly life starts going really fast, man. Day after day, week after week, year after year. But it's okay because you're packing money away and one day you'll be able to get off of that couch and move to a different one in Florida and then you won't have to do anything. (laughs) And we convince ourselves that this is life. But I know there's something in some of you that goes, there's something wrong with this. I don't want to die while I'm sitting on this couch. This is why Jesus said, you have an enemy. He's come to kill your heart and to steal your dreams and destroy your life. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I've come that you might have life and you might have it fully. You were born into a war that you didn't ask for. You have an enemy. See, this truth is written into every great story you know too. This is at the heart of every story that's ever been told or written or filmed. It's there over and over again because we share this common experience that there's more going on than we see. And it appears, I feel as if there is is something that's coming against my hopes and my dreams and my plans. Wolfgang Amadeus, uh, Amadeus Mozart was brilliant, obviously. He was a prodigy. You know Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? Mozart wrote that tune when he was three years old. He composed his first symphony when he was 12. His music, as we know, has endured. We hear it. You go to a wedding. You go to any, any. Mozart is constantly played, maybe more often than any other classical composer. Yet, as one writer pointed out, this brilliant young man, brilliant, he died young. We don't know how or why, but he was impoverished alone, and his body was dumped in a common grave. So there was a movie made about this called Amadeus. It was, it was directed by Peter Schaefer. It was his attempt to tell this tale of Mozart. It's a story of, it's your story too. It's a story of genius and jealousy and it led to murder. And Schaefer creates in the story a villain worthy of this enemy that you have too. In the story, it, 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 it's a villain essentially comes com, comprising this force that you've felt and are aware of. In the movie, it's a, it's a court composer named Salieri. He was a musician of lesser note. Salieri was tormented by envy over Mozart's greatness. Many of you know the story of Joseph in the Bible. He finds himself at the bottom of a pit. Why? Because of the jealousy of his brothers. That's Salieri to Mozart, Right? He embodies what must have been Lucifer's jealousy of God's glory, which brought that angel, your enemy, to ruin. There's this remarkable scene in the film, and it it depicts a day when Mozart's wife brings his music to Salieri in hopes that Salieri will get her husband a job. After all, he was important. He was, was, uh, in a sense, thought of higher than Mozart at the time. But she does not know yet that Salieri is simply a wolf, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And as she brings the works, Mozart's works, to Salieri, he begins to look through this portfolio and he is captivated. 
by the work of his rival. In the movie, Salieri says to Mozart's wife, are these originals? And she replies, yes, sir, he doesn't make copies. As the astonished composer begins to read these sheets, you start to hear the thoughts in his mind. You hear him in his mind going, quote, astoundingly, it was beyond belief. These were first and only drafts of music, but they showed no correction of any kind, not one. He simply wrote down music already finished in his head, page after page of it, as if, it were, as if he were just taking dictation. And music... Finished like no music has ever been finished. Displace one note and there was diminishment, or diminishment. Displace one phrase, the structure would fall. Salmieri says, it was clear to me that the sound I had heard in the archbishop's palace had been no accident. And then you begin to see the heart of your enemy. Here, take a look. It was clear to me. That sound I had heard in the Archbishop's palace had been no accident. Here again was the very voice of God. I was staring through the cage of those meticulous ink strokes at an absolute beauty. Out of his work. So you will help us? Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. I will ruin your incarnation. From now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, and you give me only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust and unfair and unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature here on earth as far as I am able. I will ruin your incarnation. You have an enemy, and you just saw and heard his voice. And what's at risk is your heart and your life. 
That's the heart of your enemy. He's determined to hinder and harm and ruin you as God's image bearers. To steal and kill and destroy. The story of your life, the story of my life, is so often the story of a long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows how important that is. The one that knows that you could be feared. The one that knows that you could live. I hope you sense that a little bit. Because when you start to get it, things start to make sense to you. The Bible starts to make more sense to you. Much of your life will start to make much more sense to you. I was told by someone out in the foyer this morning, there was an attack, many of you know, in Burkina Faso, Africa yesterday. And a CMA missionary uh, who was a father with, with uh, as I understand it, uh, young children, um, was killed in it. I mean, see, there's a war afoot. I mean, you can pretend it's not there. But you know it. You feel it. This is why the prophet Isaiah, when he spoke of Jesus' coming, this is what he said. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from the darkness for the prisoner. See, this is the mission God is on. To free your heart, to bring you back to life again. Every great story ever written has an enemy because your story does. Now, we don't talk about this much. I know, I know uh, it's not, it, it gets out of our comfort zone. It's not a seeker-friendly message. I know nobody says, man, I can't wait to bring a friend to church so John can talk about spiritual warfare. But if we don't get this, we're likely never to get to the core issue of why the life that's promised in the scripture seems so much better than the life you and I experience in our jobs and in our homes and in our marriages and in our relationship. Because, church, if you are open to the fact that God might exist, and you are because you're here on a Sunday morning, then I would ask you this. Are you open to the fact that there might also be one who stands in eternal opposition to this God? And then, because you're his creation, in eternal opposition to you. Now, Salieri's words sounded vaguely familiar because this is what the Bible says your enemy, is do your enemy is doing. Quote, he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And what does he spend every day and every night of his untiring existence doing? Well, according to the Bible, quote, then, as he's described here as a dragon, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You have an enemy. And maybe things start to make a little bit more sense now about what's going on in your life. How does he make war? Here's my answer. The same way he has always made war since the way he slithered through the Garden of Eden and attacked the first image bearers of God. He tells us lies and we buy them. We believe them. This is why Jesus calls him the father of lies. William Garnell was an English author. He is a clergyman from the 1600s. Listen to how he nails this. He says, The devil has more temptations than an actor has costumes for the stage. And one of his all-time favorite disguises is that of a lying spirit. To abuse your tender heart with the worst news he can deliver. You ready? That you do not really love Jesus Christ, 
and that you're only pretending and that you're only deceiving yourself. Have you ever heard that voice? I have. I heard it this morning. I heard the voice while I'm talking to you about the voice. Somewhere along the line, you and I, we get lied to and we buy into it. And it drives our behavior and what we do at levels we don't even understand. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples, right? I mean, maybe if you're, you're, you're a guy, you somehow bought into the lie that sports were the most important thing in the world. They were what matters. Why were you told that? I don't know, because your dad watched it on TV all the time? Because when the paper came, the first thing your dad did was open it to the sports page? Is it because when you go home, there's entire blocks of TV channels dedicated to sports? Have you thought about this? There is not a banned channel. But what if you're a banned kid? Maybe your dad signed you up for football and you were like 60 pounds, right? And... I mean, you know the story, of, I told you my story, right? When my dad signed me up for football, I was like 60 pounds, but my head was the current size it is now. And I remember they took me to get a football helmet, and uh, they, they said, we don't have any football helmets that fit your head. We have to take you to the special area. Um, and so I got taken to the special area for a helmet that fit my head. Because maybe your dad had dreams of glory for you. But the truth is that we're really more likely tr tr visions of glory for himself. And maybe you never got off the bench. Maybe you're a band kid in a sports crazy world and somehow you got a message that said, you know what? You're a nerd. You're a disappointment to your father. He really wanted to root for you, but you never got in the game. You don't fit in. You're not the man your dad hoped for. Now I ask you, is that the voice of God? I can't tell you how many 50-year-old men have that voice going through their head. And they spend their days and their years trying to prove something to a father that passed away 10 years ago. Maybe as a little girl, maybe as a little girl, you got a voice, you got a wound put on your heart Maybe you had acne, maybe you were a little chubby, maybe you didn't have the boyfriend in high school, you know, none of the boys seem interested. All my friends seem to have boyfriends, all my friends are going to the prom. Heck, as I think about it, I don't even really have that many friends. And then you go home, and every day, it's not bad enough in school, everybody tells you that you're not good, you don't fit in, you're not right, but then you go home and you pull out the magazine out of the mailbox and it's just more beautiful women, and you turn on the TV and it's just more beautiful women, and all you see over and over again is you don't look like this. And something happens in your heart, and the voice starts to talk. You hear it. You're fat. You're ugly. No man would ever want you. Nobody even likes you. Have you heard that story? I mean, has it caused you or motivated you to do things that you wish you could take back, but you just wanted to feel loved or valued by a man? Martin Sanders is a big wig in our denomination. He's kind of the spiritual guru within the CMA. And 
I was at a conference with Martin one time, and there's all pastors in the room, and he said he started talking about this lying voice that speaks into our hearts and motivates us to do all kinds of stupid things and to live out of patterns of lies. And he was speaking with one pastor, and he was counseling him on what was going on in his life, and he, he said to him, are you aware of this voice that's lying to you all the time? And the guy said, yeah, I, I, I am. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to go home, and every time that voice says something to you over the next two weeks, I want you to write it down. And then come back to my office, and we're going to talk about what it said to you. So he, he went off, and he came back to Martin's office two weeks later. And Martin just made it very plain. I'm going to clean it up a little bit for our church consumption. But in a room full of pastors, this is the story he told. He said to the guy, what, what is it that the voice is saying to you? What did you write down? And the guy pulled out a piece of paper and he handed it to Martin. And on the paper it said, all I ever hear is, you're so effing stupid. It's a voice in his head. He got lied to. And he began to live out of this lie and his heart began to die and he got picked off by the enemy. To the couch he went. Church, marriage, kids, to heck with them. Because he died, he got picked off. This is the assault on your heart. It's trying to keep you from life. It goes on all the time. Now, I want to share with you the pattern of it in my life as I thought about how I hear the voice. And maybe you will too. And I was trying to figure out what's the best way to, to, to share this with you where maybe you might have felt it the same as I feel it. Now, I feel in all kinds of areas, and I'll show you that in a moment. But the way, and it might seem trivial how I'm going to explain this to you. But listen, I'm going to use uh, exercise as my example for this. First thing I will say about it being, uh, if you actually have an adversary that's trying to keep you from life, don't you think he would like nothing more than for you to be out of shape, eating crud, lying around, you know, bored, tired, and... So I really do believe there is a spiritual thing that goes on with our bodies. For example, why do I long to sit on the couch but I have no desire for like my treadmill? The mere thought of it does not entice me. It frankly, it, it repulses me. <laughs> it makes me feel guilty. Every day I walk by uh, that exercise bike in Joan and I's bedroom and I say to myself, that is a very expensive thing we have to hold clothes on. That's where we hang our clothes. See, there are lies that get told to us, and, and they work through, I think we, maybe the commonality one for all of us might be just this exercise one, because I do believe there's a spiritual battle there. Let me give you the first lie that gets told to you. The first lie is this. It happened to me last night. Joe and I were out late the night before celebrating my brother's birthday, and we had wrestling all day, and then we, had to, we were putting all kinds of stuff away from Christmas, and it got to be like 5 o'clock, 4.30, and I'm thinking, i got to go to the gym. i got to go to the gym. i got to get to that gym. And the uh, first lie that comes, first lie, got told me I was sitting on my couch, it said this. Number one, it won't make a difference. John, it's not going to matter if you miss today. John, nobody's going to notice that you went to the gym. No one's going to know. John, you don't look that out of shape. I mean, you might be skinny fat, but, you, you know, in general, no one's going to come up to you and go, boy, you look like you really dropped a lot of LBs. No one will know. It won't make a difference. Now, that's funny when we talk about me going to exercise. It's not funny when that voice comes to you and says that about your marriage. It's not funny when that voice comes to you and tells you that about how you interact with your children. It's not funny when that voice comes to you and tells you that about your career or your heart. 
Here's the second thing, the second lie that comes right on the heels of that first lie. You know what? I think to myself, it will make a difference. I, I do want to have a marriage that's like this. I do want to raise children in a certain fashion. I don't want to spend my life in this dead-end job. So I think it will make a difference. So here's the second lie the enemy tells you. You can do it later. You don't have to go right now. Last night, I'm, I, I knew that gym closed at 6. And I started thinking I should go at four. And then in my mind, I started doing these little things. Well, let's see. If I'm going to run for a half hour, I don't need to get there until 5.30. So I can go later. Then when it got to be close to 5.30, I started thinking, well, if I leave now, I'm only going to be able to run for 20 minutes. And that reverted me right back to lie one of, well, that won't make a difference then, so just stay home. <laughs> funny when it's about running on a treadmill. Not so funny when it's about training up a child in the way they should go. How many of us have said, you remember when, when your kids were born, maybe, as, maybe you were like me, you said, you know, I should really have a regular time of family devotion with these children, but they're too young. They'll never understand it. I'll wait till later. And then I got to be about six, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I should probably create a time of spending some time with these kids doing these family devotions. But, you know, they're six, and these books are kind of silly, and I'm much more mature than this. So I really, you know, I'll put it off till later. And then they got to be 13, and I said, well, they don't, they're not going to sit down and do this with me, so I'm only kidding myself. I'll wait until later. And now my son lives in North Carolina. I mean, how many of you have said, I am going to have that, that, that birds and the bee talk with my, my kids I know I need to have that talk. I know they're married and have three kids, but I really believe that if I have that talk now, it still might matter. It's the voice of the liar. You don't need to do it now. Just stay there on the couch. Keep going to work. Keep saving so you can do nothing later. Here's lie number three. Happened to me last night. I got off the couch, I said, no, get behind me, Satan, I am going to the gym. And I got to the gym, and I got on the treadmill, and there's a little arrow there that starts to say how fast that thing's going to go, and as I was pushing the arrow to go faster, this little voice came into my head, it said, you don't have to go that fast, you don't, nobody's watching, slow down, you don't have to... And then I hear all the justification. I'm telling you, there's a war for my soul on that treadmill last night. And I'm pushing the, the thing up. And I hear this little voice in my head. I swear this is what it said. If you fall, you're going to shoot off the back of this thing like a missile. And you're going to embarrass yourself. Funny when I'm talking about the gym. It's not all that funny when I'm talking about your life. I don't have to try that hard. I don't have to care that much. I don't, have to, I don't really have to go talk to that person. I don't really have to go make that right. And here's the last lie. Here's the last lie because I pushed that arrow up and I'm running. And you know what started to happen? It started to hurt. Now, if you go to get your heart back, you have an enemy and he is going to say to you, there is going to be obstacles in the way, there's going to be pain that comes across. And here's the first thing, you know what that voice is going to say? Stop. Quit. Give up. Don't keep running. Funny when you're on a treadmill. 
It's not funny when you're talking about your husband or your wife or your kids or, or the calling that God had on your life. Man, by the time I get off the treadmill, I've been like on a mental assault. You know what I mean? Like I get off going, man, I was like a war for my life in there. So what do we do? What do you do in this battle? Well, most of us don't do anything, and that's the problem, but that's not the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is eternal truth number three from last week. You were created to engage in this battle, not to sit it out. And the reason things are the way they are in your life, in your home, in your marriage, and in our world is followers of Jesus Christ have not tapped into the power that's available to you. Instead, we've decided, ah, I don't need to engage Here's what the Bible actually says about what you're called to. Jesus' brother James wrote it in chapter 4. He said, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Come near to God. He'll come near to you. Here's what Peter said. Jesus once had to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. Here's what Peter said. He goes, look, I know. He says, be alert and sober-minded. I can tell you that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, someone to take out, someone to steal a heart away from or a soul or a mind or strength. Peter says he's going to come. Resist him. Don't give up. Stand firm in the faith because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This is why we all know, we all know this story. Paul's prodigy, Timothy, said, fight the good fight. Or as one translation put it, and this, this I think is more true to what was going on, wage the good warfare because there is a war afoot and it's for your heart. You need to fight for your heart. If you've been taken out, it's not just you that pays the price. It's your spouse and your kids. It's our church. It's our town. When you lose your heart, when you're sidelined, when you just exist and breathe and work and go to bed, when you have no passion... Don't you remember you are going to make a difference with your life? When you give up, you begin to die. Your heart grows cold. And those around you start to die with you. So what do you do? What do you do? I just want to give you a couple things that you can do to fight. First is this. This is how you address that issue of that voice in your head. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 4. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, and don't give the devil a foothold. The Bible's teaching that unresolved emotional issues create spiritual strongholds in your life. When we don't deal with things, by the way, the New Living Translation actually translates it mighty foothold. Things like anger and lust and jealousy, and bitterness, and disappointment, and frustration, when you just stew in them, when you don't deal with them, when you don't work through them, when you say, I'm just going to forget about this and move on. Paul is saying, if you don't deal with these issues, these things become the narrative of your life. And the war rages in your head. So what do you need to do? You need to, to deal with these things. You, 
You need to deal with those wounds. You need to, to deal with those lies that you were told. You need to understand what the voice is saying to you, and you need to counter the voice with the truth of Scripture, with the truth of conversation with the friends, with the truth of good counseling. I had a friend email me this week and said, I'm really convicted by what you're saying. I need to go talk to somebody. I got a voice playing in my head that's got to get fixed. I don't want to live my life sidelined, believing I'm not beautiful. Go share it with someone. Don't give the devil a foothold. And nothing does that more than undealt with emotional wounds. Get in a small group. Go to counseling. Walk through the stuff. Go to redemption on Monday night. Get in with some people and talk about it. The voice in your head, the narrative of your life, that story needs to change. Christianity is not a faith simply of a belief system in your mind. We talked about it last week. You cannot be a Christian until you have a change of your heart. That's where you believe that's where you're saved. Here's the second thing you need to do. This is great. We blow by it all the time. The writer of the Proverbs said it. Above all else, above all else, above your kids, above your job, above, above all else, guard your heart. Because everything you do flows out of that. Oh, we are. Can I tell you how bad we are at this? When's the last time you said to yourself, I gotta watch my heart? I mean, we watch everything, right? We make time for our kids and the house and the car and the career. Most of us take so much better care of our dogs and our cats. and our, I've got a bird that I give more time to than my heart. We just let them be. And they die under the pressure of work and kids and sports and finances and TV. I mean, as Americans, right, we're so proud of our work ethic, our culture. You know, I, I know we laugh at the Europeans who take, like, August off. Oh, you know, how ridiculous, those lazy dogs. And we think to ourselves, we're real people because we give ourselves, like, one, maybe two weeks of vacation. Maybe my heart might come back to life if I, if I took a week away. But here's what I know about most of you that are in this room. Do you know what you think about when you're on vacation? Work. And when you get back, do you look forward to getting back to work? No, because there's just another pile of work. I'm not saying that. I mean, I understand we have to work. I'm not saying that you don't have to work. But here's the question. When is the last time you did anything for your heart to make your heart come back to life? God intends that we treat our hearts as the treasures of the kingdom. He ransomed them at the cost of his son. They really do matter. Let me ask you, when was the last time you did something for your heart, for the real you, the inner you that's dying to live? If you believed in your heart that it was the treasure of the kingdom, what would you do differently do you know, see, most of us, especially guys, most of us are so dead that we don't even know what it is that excites our hearts anymore. What brings you to life? Is it reading? Is it the beach? Is it the woods? Is it art or music? You've got to make time in your life for this stuff. I'm telling you, the busyness is killing us. Of course we need to balance it. But here, take it from Pastor John. If you need to go to the beach, go to the beach. Stop thinking you're too important. You're too busy. 
If you need to go into the woods, go in the woods. If you, if you need to, to go to Broadway, go to Broadway. If you need to dream again, go dream again. You need to get back in the game of life. Your heart needs to soar and to be fed. Here's one thing I know every one of us need, though. Because we're all built somewhat the same and somewhat differently. I love the beach. You stick me in the city, I hate the city. Some of my kids love the city, right? I, I, don't, like, I don't like the outdoors. The only outdoor place I like is the beach, right? That's outdoorsy for me. But that's where I need to go. Now, there's one thing that all of us need, though, and that's this, silence and quiet and solitude. Jesus modeled it. We don't do it. There's a story in the first, uh, in one chapter in the early part of Mark, and there's quite a, a stir in town. And it says, the whole town gathered at the door where Jesus was. And see, Jesus is becoming in town at this point the man. The scripture says at, uh, that evening, because Jesus was important, like we like to think we are. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. But very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, and he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, I love this. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Jesus, everybody is looking for you. Now, if you're like me, I love that. Oh, I'm important. They're all looking for me. I got to get back to work. This is what Jesus says. He doesn't go, man, this is my opportunity. Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. Everyone's looking for you. Maybe you can relate to this at work, at home, at church. Everything's coming down on you. I mean, this for Jesus is a tremendous opportunity. He could launch his ministry. He could increase sales, expand the audience. You know, the brand would, would grow. Does this sound familiar, right? This is his chance. And what does he do? He goes, I got to get out of here. Because I might gain an audience and lose a heart. But when you lose your heart, you take others down with you. I do this sometimes. I, I, I'll go away to a, uh, a little retreat center um, out in Basking Ridge. It's a little Christian retreat center. You can get a room for $5 for the day. We kissed overnight, but it's just got a sink and a cotton it for five bucks. I'll just go there with my Bible and leave my phone in the car. I have a friend that's a spiritual director that I pray with once a month. I go and we go into a basement and, and uh, he goes, are you ready? And I go, yeah, I'm ready. And I say to him, are you ready? And he goes, yeah, I'm ready. And you know what we do? We turn off the light and sit in silence. And after a long time goes by, he goes, what, what did you hear from God? And then I tell him, and he goes, are you sure that's the voice of God? When was the last time you did that? Because there's a voice going through your head. Are you sure that's the voice of God? Now, if you're hearing this this morning, there's a little bit of a flame or an ember. It's going, oh, there's something true about that. I think I might have died. I think I might have let my heart go. I think I need, need to reinvigorate what's going on in my life. You know, what, you know what's immediately going to come? The first thing that's going to happen? It's not going to make a difference. He's the pastor. Of course he's talking about God. It's not going to make a difference in your life. And then the next lie that you're going to be told is, you don't need to do that today. Think about it. And then the third lie is going to be, all right, let's not get crazy here. Fine, go for a walk in the woods, but don't make any real substantial changes. And the fourth one might be quit. Do not quit. The enemy 
is roaring like a lion trying to take out your heart. Don't quit. Band, come on up. Do not let the evil one get a foothold in your life. Here's the last thing that I would tell you if you really want to have your heart come back to life. Go put yourself in an unfamiliar setting. Go do something totally different. One of the other things I got this week from an email from somebody when they said the shade went up for me, they said the shade went up for me when I sat on top of a garbage pile in Guatemala and saw what was going on there. Go to Guatemala. Go to Pine Ridge. I had a thing with my son this summer. I told you, I'm not much of an outdoorsman other than the beach. And uh, Caleb is an outdoorsman. And Caleb said, can we go, you know, we wanted to go uh, deep sea fishing. So I said, yeah, you know, I didn't want to, but I wanted to spend time with my son. So I went deep sea fishing. And uh, we're out on, it was more deep bay fishing, but we were on the bay and uh, they pulled in a puffer fish. Have you ever seen a puffer fish in real life? It is the most God-inspiring, I mean, you look at it and you go, if there's not a God, this could not exist. This thing was spectacular. It was puffed up, and everybody's holding it, and we're all touching it. And then all of a sudden, it's just like Mrs. Puff on SpongeBob. All of a sudden, the puffer fish decides it doesn't want to puff anymore, and it just goes down, and now it's a fish. And I'm looking, and I am just awed by creation, right? And I could feel my heart coming back to life a little, like, whoa, this is real. Like, these things exist. And what the coolest thing was, I don't know if you've ever seen this, then kind of these hardened sailor guys, they took the puffer fish, and they take it and they go, and it blows right back up. And I'm just blown away by it. And then they started bouncing it like it was a basketball on the deck. Cruel, but nevertheless, absolutely mind-blowing. Get off the couch. Go out on a boat. Get to the woods. Get a different job. Go talk to somebody. There's a war afoot for your heart. Don't get taken out and miss life. Lord, I pray over your people that you would wake us up, O oh sleepers, that we would be able to understand that the times are indeed evil. And Father, that we would, we, would, we would go out of here bold in determination, not to wait till later, not to listen to the lie that it's not going to matter, but to walk out and be committed to doing something, to getting our hearts back. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close the song.